Uh, today we're going to conclude our kingdom parable series. Luke chapter 18 is where we're going to be. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there. Uh, this parable, it's all about Jesus saying, I know, I get it. The way you look at the world, the way that you see who's on top, the power structures, the way it looks like to get ahead, what it looks like when you accumulate wealth, what it looks like to be right and to be a good person. There's a way that the world looks, but everything is not as it seems. On July 1st, Netflix is releasing the last two episodes of season four of the hit show Stranger Things. Now, if you haven't seen Stranger Things, have no idea what it's about, don't worry. I'm not going to spoil it for you. But I am going to explain to you the premise of the show. Stranger Things is this science fiction-based show uh, in the 1980s that follows a group of kids in the little fictional town of Hawkins, Indiana. The Hawkins National Laboratory performs these scientific research experiments. And they're working for the United States Department of Energy, but they're secretly exploring paranormal and supernatural activity. And they just happen to unearth or uncover this portal to an alternate dimension called the Upside Down. It's this dimension that exists right alongside of the dimension you can see, but it's completely upside down, completely different. It's right there, but it's totally different. And I think what Jesus wants to invite us today is to the Upside Down. He wants us to reimagine the world we live in. His teaching in this text is quite jarring. I think the question for all of us is, will we have the courage to receive it? Will we have the courage to embrace it, to enter into it? Don't miss this. Whether or not you say yes to that question, I believe, will in large part determine the trajectory of your life. Luke 18, beginning in verse 9, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me. A sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Now, a little bit of context for us because the story demands it for us to really enter in. Every Jewish person listening to this story would have recognized what Jesus is talking about. The people would go to the temple to pray two times every day. At those times in the morning and the evening, the priest would make a sacrifice, usually a small lamb. Incense would be lit, trumpets would be played, cymbals would clang, prayers would be offered, psalms would be sung. And Jesus says in that context, there's two people coming from their homes, one a tax collector and the other a Pharisee. The word Pharisee literally means separate. These were the Bible study teachers. These were the, the elders, the deacons, the, the pastors. These were the people who had it all together, right? People that other people looked up to and went, ah, when we get there, we'll be okay with God. On the other hand, there was this tax collector. They were the exact opposite. 
They were the people who robbed their own countrymen. They sold out in order to earn from Rome the right to tax their own people. And they kept driving up taxes up, 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 up until everybody else was living in poverty and they were living in wealth. And so you have one person that everybody looks up to and you have another person who everybody says, I'm glad I'm not like them. So that's the context in which Jesus is telling the story. A lot of people read this story and on the surface they think it's about prayer. The context is prayer, but the story is about the word righteousness. It's this word about how to be right. There was a way to be right in the Greco-Roman world, and it was all about following the rules. By living according to morals and ethics, by being a decent person. But as you read through the scriptures, you'll find that righteousness is way deeper than that. Righteousness has to do with a relationship. Not just the keeping of the law, but about being right with another person. To be able to look them in the eye and to know that things are okay between you and them. The question is really, are you okay? That's what the story's about. How do you get to a place where you're comfortable in your own skin? Where you're comfortable before God? How do you get to the place where you know you're right with God? So Jesus told this parable, verse 9. To some who are confident of their own righteousness and look down on everyone else. Now, notice that the way that they treat other people is determined by what they see in their own soul. Do you know that the way that you interact with everybody around you, including God, is determined primarily by what you see in you? What happens in you determines what happens through you. Here's the way that we're going to say it today. The way you see yourself shapes your approach to everything else. So I want to ask you, when you look in the mirror, what do you see? Or if you've got a, you've got a smartphone, just open up the camera and, and look at yourself. Take, take a selfie real quick. What, what do you see? I, th- I think it'd be good practice for us to be honest this morning about what we see. What, what, what do you see? Do you see somebody who has it all together? Do you see someone who's broken? Do you see someone who's failed? Maybe someone who's unlovable? Do you see someone who's had to be strong for other people to kind of hold it all together? Right now, I see somebody who's overwhelmed. Anybody with me? Or maybe we just see somebody who's good. All of us see something. The way you see you determines the way you treat all the yous around you. It overflows into the lives of the people that you care most about. And look at the way that this played out in the Pharisee's life. He told them the story. To some who are confident of their own righteousness and look down on everyone else. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed. It's really interesting. We see this progression. They trust in themselves for their own righteousness, which shapes the way they view everything else, which determines the position of everyone else in relationship to them. And what happens? The Pharisee is by himself praying. God, I thank you that I'm so awesome. God, I thank you that I'm so amazing. God, you did a good work when you created me. 
And everybody's over here and they're praying and they're gathered up in a group in a cluster. They're going through the motions. And Jesus wants to make a point. The Pharisee who trusts in himself for his own righteousness, he's standing apart from everyone else. And that's exactly what happens when we trust in ourselves. There's a word we have for that. Pride. Jesus wants to show us that pride creates divide between ourselves and between God and between the people that we love the most. If you dive into Galatians 6, verses 2 and 3, the Apostle Paul writes to the church in Galatia and he says, carry each other's burdens and in this way you fulfill the law of Christ, which is love. Love your neighbor as yourself. If anyone thinks that there's something when they're not, they deceive themselves. Isn't that interesting? The thing that prevents you from carrying the burdens of others, from being in life-giving relationships with others, is thinking that you're something, like the Pharisee did. I'm amazing. I've got it all together. I've accomplished so much. I read my Bible every day. I give a tenth of everything I own. I haven't missed church in a year. I go to the prayer meetings. And what starts to happen? There's this distance. There's this divide that's created. Can I invite you just to lean in a little bit today? As I've tried to examine my own soul, I've recognized that pride is hard to see in myself. And so my guess is there's a lot of us who are going, do you know who I wish was here to hear the sermon? Fill in the blank, right? Anybody thinking that? But I think what Jesus might want to say to us today is this sermon isn't for somebody else. This sermon's for you, just like it's for me. There's some devastating things that start to happen in our soul when we begin to, to believe this narrative of I'm okay and I'm good because of what I've done. There, there's at least three narratives that this Pharisee believes. One, he starts to have this, this narrative of his own holiness. The reason he's distant is because he believes that his holiness needs to be protected by distance between him and dirtiness. So I'm more holy the more sin I stay away from. And isn't it, isn't it interesting how these things keep coming back around? We still try to define holiness based on what we stay away from. There's this whole Christian subculture that's built around helping you stay away from people that are broken and sinful and hurting and are in pain. And you want to know what the problem with that is? Jesus. Jesus entered in with sinful people. He entered in with broken people. He entered in with people who were in pain, and he started to reverse that narrative that says, oh, no, if I get near sinful people, then I'll become sinful. And he goes, no, 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 no. What actually happens is when holiness encounters sin, it's not that holiness is made dirty, it's that sin is made clean. And so when Jesus touches a leper, he doesn't get leprosy, the leper is healed. When Jesus encounters a demon, he drives out a demon, he doesn't get it himself. See, the Pharisee's holding on to this old method of I've gotta stay away from everything that's dirty so that I can remain clean. And a lot of times, pride creates a divide by giving us a faulty narrative of what it means to be holy. You know you're holy, not by what you stay away from, but because of who you know and the grace that you receive. That's new covenant holiness, friends. 
But it doesn't stop there for the Pharisee. It's not just this narrative that he believes about his own holiness. There's a word that Jesus uses to describe the attitude of the Pharisee. It says that he looked down on everyone else, which literally in the Greek means emptiness. He looked at them as, as empty people, as people who were, who were sort of soulless. And you can see why. From his perspective, he says, I have done these things, and I have tithed, and I have been to the temple, and I have done all of these things that, by the way, weren't even required by the law. And they haven't. They haven't. And the fact that they haven't means that they're unworthy of love. The narrative that he believes is that I'm valuable based on what I produce. Can I just give a quick pastoral word to all the parents out there? One of the most dangerous things we can do as parents is hold on to the narrative that we're valuable based on what we produce. Because what we see in us always determines what we give to others. And so if the story that we're telling ourselves is I'm valuable based on what I produce, then what's the story that our kids are going to end up hearing? You're valuable based on what you produce. So one of the truths that Jesus wants to teach us is that if I find my value in what I do, I measure everybody else by what they do also. I can tell you one of the things I've noticed in watching kids play baseball all summer is how much kids look to their parents for validation. Game after game after game, you would see a kid get a hit, and they would run to first base, and the first thing they do is they look out into the stands, and they look for mom or dad to see if they'll give them a thumbs up, to see if they'll give them their approval. But the same thing happens when they get out. Maybe they strike out. And, and they, they look at their coach or they look at mom or dad and, and, and they're like, they have this look like, are we okay? Like, I, I failed you. Are, are we going to be okay? And they're carrying this enormous weight. And so what I've tried to do is I've tried to tell my kids, no matter what happens, whether you hit a home run, whether you strike out, like, I, I love you the same. You're, you're still my son. And this hits real close to home for me because I have this perfectionism. I have this, this performer narrative that spins around in my head. So much of my life was spent thinking, my dad loves me when I do good, but when I mess up, I've got to look at him and make sure that I'm okay, make sure that we're okay. And I don't know about you, but, but I want to kill that narrative in me as quickly as I can because I want it to die in my kids too. Because it's no way to live wondering if you're okay with the people who you love the most. And if you're here today and you're wondering if you're okay with God, if you're looking at him and going, I failed, are we okay? His question back to you is not, how much have you done for me lately and how much have you produced? His question back to you is, are your hands open to receive the grace and mercy of Jesus? That's his question. And the Pharisee just can't get there, so, so what happens? The Pharisee's standing by himself and he, this is what he prays. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. I mean, can, can, can you believe some of these guys? These robbers, these evildoers, these adulterers, or, or even that dude over there, can you believe the audacity of that guy? That this guy has, has, has stolen from all of your people and he comes to church? I mean, me? I fast twice, twice, a, I fast twice a week, I give a tenth of all that I have. Five times in two verses, this guy says to God, I'm sure you're amazing and you're great, but can we talk about me? I mean, you're great, don't get me wrong, but, but let's talk about me. 
five times in two verses. And then he says, hey God, let's also talk about them. Let's talk about how much better I am than they are. Here's what this guy does. Like I mentioned, he's playing by rules that God didn't give. These weren't things that God commanded. He's made up his own way of being right with God, which is what we call religion. It's fascinating how people who make up their own way of being right with God rarely fall on the wrong side of that equation. You ever notice that? He's like, God, I'm, I'm good. What's he doing? He's measuring himself against everybody else. His first narrative is, I'm holy because I'm separate. His second narrative is, I'm valuable based on what I produce. His third narrative is, I'm okay because I'm better than them. And it all falls under this banner of pride. And you know what's devastating about this I'm better than them line of thinking? It's impossible to love if you're in competition with somebody. If you're comparing yourself with somebody, you're competing. Because there's only two ways that I climb this ladder that I feel like I have to climb. One is by actually climbing it and and getting better so that I can pat myself on the back and say, yeah, I'm pretty awesome. The other is if you go down a couple of rungs and I go up a couple of rungs. So if you're comparing yourself to people, you're competing with people. And if you're competing with people, it's impossible for you to love people. If you're comparing yourself to people and it's impossible for you to love people, then comparison is actually the death of the greatest command. So we have to find something that allows us to look in the mirror and go, in all of my brokenness and all of my failure and all of my pain, I'm still okay. And it's not because of any of the resources inside of me. If Jesus were here today, I think he'd say, you know, sin, sin is not primarily about whether or not we've broken the law. It's about a broken relationship. So what I want to do is I just want to ask some diagnostic questions. Pride is hard for us to see in ourselves. So here's some questions for you to ask. And if you answer yes to some of these questions, then maybe there's some work that God wants to do in your soul. And don't be afraid of that. Because there's a difference between condemnation, which is the voice of the enemy, and conviction, which is the voice of the Spirit. The enemy wants to condemn so he can beat you down. The spirit wants to convict so that he can show you that you are down and start to bring you up. How easily are you offended? How hard do you try to convince people that you're right? Don't you imagine that if you were to talk with a Pharisee, he would have just said, like, I don't get what the big deal is. I'm right, he's wrong. How hard, for, how hard is it for you to admit you're wrong? If you're like, I can't remember the last time I was, this sermon's for you. How often do you say, I'm not as good at fill in the blank as that person? Now, I know you're thinking that, that, that's the opposite of pride. That, that, that's self-deprecating. No, it's, it's really just the opposite side of the coin. It's just pride where you haven't succeeded in your game. How often do you try things that you're not good at? Because people who often struggle with pride and perfectionism, they typically avoid things that they might fail at because it would be such a huge blow to their ego. And I know because I'm preaching to myself. How do you respond when people treat you like a servant? How hard is it for you to genuinely encourage others? 
How much do you empathize with people who have failed? How often do you share the deepest parts of your soul with trusted friends? In Jesus' story, the Pharisee serves as a warning for us to create a spiritual awakening. To go, maybe I've been playing games. Maybe I've just been coming to church and maybe church has, has turned into the spreadsheet where I show God and, and say to God, are we okay? So maybe today by the power of the Spirit, God is doing some work. And, and he's going, you know, maybe this, this sermon isn't for, for the person that you thought it was for. Maybe it's for you. And I want to do some business in your soul. Maybe, maybe you're going, oh my goodness, pride creates a divide and there's this divide in my life that's cut me off from some of the people that I love the most. Maybe it's cut me off from God. Maybe you're here today and you still think it's somebody else's fault. If pride is the secret destroyer of all relationships, and it is, Jesus also invites us to one of the secrets of success. I love the way that John Stott put it. He says, pride is your greatest enemy, humility is your greatest friend. Verse 13, but the tax collector stood at a distance. You see, the, the Pharisee stands alone as if to say, I'm better than you. The tax collector stands far off as if to say, I could never get that close. It's different. He would not even look up to heaven but beat his breast, which was something that was typically reserved for funerals, for laments. So he's beating his chest. Not, God, I'm good, but, but God, I'm broken and I'm in need. And he said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. See, here's what's interesting. They've walked up to the temple. They've seen a priest slaughter, slaughter a lamb and spread the blood. They've seen the incense rise. They've, they've sung the psalms. They've cried their prayers out to God. They've done everything, and yet he still thinks that there's, there's something off between us. You know what he recognizes? He recognizes that going through the motion of religion will never touch the deepest places of his soul that he knows are broken. So what's he do? He does the one thing that all of us who have received grace and mercy do. He asks for it. The truth of the matter, friends, is that humility frees us to receive mercy. The only thing that can keep you from accepting God's grace is your unwillingness to admit that you need it. Everyone who admits that they need it, receives it. The Pharisee is so obsessed with his own resume that he's unable to receive God's grace. What Jesus teaches, for those who humble themselves will be exalted, and those who exalt themselves will be humbled. This is the upside down. If you want to gain your life, lose it. If you want to know what it means to be great in the kingdom, be the last. If you want to be the greatest of all, be the servant of all. This is upside down, inverted, paradoxical kingdom living. That's what it is. And so if you're tracking with me, maybe you're going, yeah, but, but Joel, how, how do I become humble? It's the right question. If you try to be humble and you succeed, where, where does that leave you? You're like, man, I'm the most humble person I've ever met. I've really got this humility thing down. I'm killing it. Like immediately you're knocked off the podium. So, so how do we do it? Let me give you a couple of, couple of ideas. Uh, one, Mother Teresa said, we learn humility through accepting humiliations cheerfully. Do not let that chance pass you by. And so I think 
the way we step into a life of humility is by being humiliated. Now, I know you're thinking, great, sounds awesome, sign me up. No, we want to avoid that like the plague, don't we? A couple years ago, I was invited to speak to a high school football team before their final home game of the season. And so we gathered together in the locker room, and I gave them a talk called Battle Ready based on Ephesians 6, talking about putting on the armor of God. And as I kind of wrapped up the, the talk, I said, no matter what happens out on the field tonight, you know that God has given you everything that you need to live a faithful life. So remember who you are. Remember who you belong to. Represent Christ well. Represent your school well. Represent your families well tonight. Bring it in. Let's go. Jaguars on three. I mean, they were locked in. I mean, they were, they were, I mean, they were all in on this. And when I said Jaguars on three, the locker room went dead silent. And they all kind of gave me like this menacing look, like I had just kind of stolen some old lady's shopping cart in the grocery store. See, their, their mascot was the Eagles, not the Jaguars. In fact, the, the Jaguars were their biggest rival. And I felt about that big at that moment. Like I could not get out of that locker room fast enough. Man, it was embarrassing. Just, just the thought of being humiliated, it feel, fills us with fear, doesn't it? So I think what Mother Teresa is saying is there will be opportunities for you to embrace that feeling and to go, yeah, maybe I'm imperfect, maybe there's some flaws, maybe there's some shortcomings. See, what happens in us when we're humiliated is the false self that we've tried to construct, the public self, the I'm okay self, the, the look at me self, it starts to die. Here's the other way that we can embrace a posture of humility. We can position ourselves to experience God's greatness. Like no one stands on the edge of the Grand Canyon and thinks, I'm pretty cool. No, nobody sets out a blanket on the Pacific Ocean and looks at the sunset and goes, oh, I'm pretty awesome. Nobody holds a newborn baby in their, in their arms and looks at it. It's like, man, I've, I've really done a lot of good lately. No. In all of those scenarios, they think to themselves, God, you are great. God, you've been good. And so we can step into humility by embracing the humiliation that's gonna come, but we can also position ourselves to experience God's greatness and his mercy and his love. The beautiful thing about humility is it's the very thing that allows us to carry the power of God. Here's the deal, you can either choose to carry your strength and your power and your pride, or you can choose to carry God's love, God's grace, and God's mercy, but you can't carry both. So which bucket are you holding on to? What Paul would say is, we have this treasure in jars of clay. He's talking about the gospel. This good news that's in the midst of being broken and sinful and needy, you are loved and you are showered with the mercy and the grace and the kindness of God to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. And so as, as we land this plane, I do want to acknowledge that there's a danger in this message that I want to make sure we avoid. I'm not saying that you should look in the mirror and go, what a pile of garbage. I'm not saying that. that. That's actually false pride. 
You shouldn't say, well, what a pile of garbage, I have no worth because I can't live up to God's standard. You've heard narratives like this in church circles. That basically when, when you go to church, your expectation is when I walk out of the door, I ought to feel worse than when I came in. If we don't feel guilty, then we haven't been to church. That's what some people think. What I'm saying is when you look in the mirror, you should think I am imperfect, I am broken, and I am sinful. But in the midst of that, I am a dearly loved child of God. I carry his image. His spirit lives inside of me. He's called me and made me holy, not because I'm amazing and not because I'm awesome, but because of his grace and his mercy has been showered down on me and I've just gotten low enough to know that I need it. He's placed me in the heavenly realms with him. He's forgiven me. He's called me his child. He has not given me a spirit of fear and timidity, but a spirit of courage and of strength and of power. When you look in the mirror, you should see both your brokenness and your beauty. And my hope is that you see God's grace raining and showering down on it all. So what do we do? We're going to come to the table. We're going to come to the Lord's Supper in just a moment. But you might want to write this down. In the kingdom of God, downward mobility, that, that's tax collector mentality, leads to an upward trajectory. And so here's what that might look like this week in your life, because I really want you to grasp this. What if this week you embraced your smallness by entering God's presence? The scriptures are really clear. Be still and know that I'm God. So one of the best ways to forget that God is God and to think that you're God is just to keep on going through that hamster wheel of success. And what Jesus says to us is just slow down. Worship and enter my presence. Stop. Pray. Maybe this week you decide to serve the people around you. Maybe it's a coworker or a friend or, or a family member. Maybe it's something simple like, like a note of encouragement or just putting your arm around someone, speaking a word of truth to somebody. Maybe you do something for somebody and you just don't tell anybody else about it. What if this week you chose to serve selflessly and then you accept it as part of your discipleship when you're treated like a servant? What if this week you started to look at every single person you saw and attributed to them intrinsic value, not earned worth? That you see them as somebody with intrinsic value, that it's just there, they're a child of God. Maybe this week you just admit your need and you receive his grace. You can either earn it or you can reserve it, but you can't do both, friends. You can't do both. You only receive grace if you know that you need it. And God never says no to anyone who asks for it. So some of you are here and you're going, man, Jesus, I, maybe for the first time I just need to say to you, I need your grace. And he says, welcome to the kingdom. So here's the question I want us to wrestle with as, as we come to the Lord's Supper this morning. Maybe for some of us it's going, Jesus, I need your grace in this area of my life. And I've, I've been trying to be strong, but today is the day that I admit that I'm weak and I need you to show up. I need your spirit to infuse my brokenness. I need your life to take over my death. And I need my trying to be replaced with your showering down of grace and mercy. So as we come to the table, would you just take a moment, would you ask Jesus, Jesus, where do you want to infuse grace in my life today? Where have I been trying 
and you're inviting me to receive. 